Welcome to a Medic Mindset Microsode. That's right, you heard it, a Microsode. In contrast to the long format episodes, this will be a short nugget. Sometimes it'll be a guest, sometimes it will be me. I'm Ginger Locke, and I'm an EMS educator in Austin, Texas. And I usually interview guests in long format. But this is a shorter format, where I bite off one small topic and do a deep, deep dive. It's my happy place, down in the little rabbit holes. And in today's microsode, I want to outline how we teach psychomotor skills at our college. I'll place heavy detail on one part in particular, and that's called overlearning. Overlearning sounds like it could be bad, but it isn't, and it's something you've already done at some point in your life. Overlearning is why you can brush your teeth while simultaneously thinking about your plans for the day. The automatic skill of teeth brushing is mostly unconscious, and it frees up your mind to think about other things. Now imagine switching that toothbrush to your non-dominant hand and imagine that process. It's different. It's not unconscious. You don't get to think about other things. You don't get to free up your working memory. I've been learning all I can about the topic in anticipation of a talk I'm doing later this month at the Wisconsin EMS Conference. The talk is called Performing When Things Get Wicked, and it's all about human performance under pressure. My friend, Tyler Christofoli, from up in Wisconsin, has said I can record the talk. So, if I don't choke under pressure, it'll be here on the podcast. But here's the thing. I trust that I won't choke, and it's not because I'm some gifted speaker. I'm actually quite nervous. I know it because I'm going to overlearn the presentation. I'm going to overlearn the topic in the quiet of my office so when my nerves ramp up on stage, the right neurons will be programmed to fire when ready. If you're willing to do the work, overlearning is like magic fairy dust. So what is this secret sauce? Overlearning is the process of practicing a skill after you've reached competence. Yep, after you've reached competence. The benefit of overlearning a skill is that it becomes automated. Think muscle memory here. An automated skill requires less concentration and less working memory and thus frees up your mind to focus on other things when performing in wicked environments. The term wicked environment is one offered to us by Dr. Pat Crosscarry. He's a Canadian emergency medicine physician who studies how doctors think. And he points out that cognitive biases and cognitive shortcuts, they really take center stage when the thinker is in a wicked environment. If you're a medic, you know the scene. Low light, loud noises, high emotions maybe lots of onlookers, add in some angry family members, time-sensitive injuries or illnesses, make it extremely hot or cold, put you in a cramped space, not enough resources, three in the morning, is your heart rate up yet? You know the calls I'm talking about. And one of the ways you can improve your performance on the wicked calls is by overlearning psychomotor skills like starting IVs or setting up equipment. You've heard the saying, don't practice until you get it right, practice until you can't get it wrong. That exemplifies what you're doing when you overlearn. Here's how our students get to the point of overlearning. First, an expert in the field breaks down the task into small steps. This is called a task analysis, and it's a written document. While we use it as a checklist during learning, it's not a checklist for calls because it can be pages long. The more detailed, the better. Remember, This is the first step of learning. We go slowly here. It's tedious and exhausting and essential. 
it's going to be the framework for everything down the line. One step at a time, the task analysis is read and the learner performs each discrete step with an expert coach who will stop them immediately if they deviate from the standard. Here's a small sample from our task analysis describing just one part of the step of subcutaneous medication injection. First, pulling straight back, remove the safety cap from the needle. Two, check the end of the needle for irregularities or contaminants. Three, warn the patient not to move. Four, pinch up the skin using your non-dominant hand. Next, with the needle bevel up, insert the needle at a 45 degree angle in one quick motion. Next, pull back slightly on the plunger, aspirate, to ensure that the needle has not been placed in the blood vessel. Next, if no blood is aspirated, inject the medication. Next step, after the injection, withdraw the needle at the same angle it was inserted. And more steps to follow after that. Okay, imagine sloth medics here. It's almost comical. It's slow and so worth it in the long run because we are laying down the magical neural network for everything down the line. They work through these steps for hours, trading places, sometimes doing the skill, sometimes reading the task analysis. In the next practice sessions, the learner is weaned from the assistance of having the task analysis read aloud to them. And instead, they make effortful attempts at performing the skill autonomously. They're autonomous from the task analysis, but not yet alone. We're still counting on a coach to provide immediate feedback if something gets off track. And we warn them, do not practice without either a peer armed with the task analysis or an expert coach who can immediately correct. And honestly, we even ask the expert coaches to have the task analysis with them. Because practice doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent. And later, I'll share an anecdote of just how powerful muscle memory is. The message is, be very careful about what you're programming. Once the learner gets to the place where we believe they have skill competence, we now take away one of their resources. We take away their time and put them on a timer. And this is the first taste of wicked that they get. We give them all the other resources, adequate equipment, adequate lighting, good climate control, the room's quiet, the patient doesn't wiggle. At this point, we are just speeding up our sloths. (laughs) Okay, small warning. Some students lose their motivation right here, and it's understandable. They have the sensation that they have skill competence, and in fact, they do have competence. So how do you keep them motivated for the next phase? You simply explain how overlearning works. You tell the learner, we are no longer learning how to do this skill. Setting up CPAP, for example. You're competent in that. Now, we're learning how to set up CPAP so our hands will be automated on the wicked calls. So when the brain is under extreme stress and not at full function, your muscle memory will take over and that they can trust the neurons to do their thing. In a way, it's a form of cognitive offloading on a call. When skills become automated, it's one less thing to consciously process on the heavy, intense calls. With this motivation, with this buy-in, they put in the repetitions. This is their work. At this point, they know what right looks like and can practice in the lab alone or do mental rehearsals when they can't get to the lab. The reps should be spread out over days and weeks because sleep is essential to consolidating new information. Educational psychologists will tell you that it's better to do 30 minutes of focused work every day over weeks while mixing in other skills 
than to do hours and hours of work on one skill over a few days. Once they have put in the reps, we are on to the next steps of cementing the skill and the students actually enjoy this next phase. Next, we create variable environments with elements of increasing difficulty. This is called stress exposure, and it prepares the learner for the stressors of the naturalistic environment. And it's essential to tell the learner what stress exposure is. Tell them that the difficulty is being increased, and you're doing it not because you're mean, but to eventually mimic that of the authentic environment of emergency medicine. This preface, it has to happen because it provides them an opportunity to perceive this added difficulty as a challenge rather than a threat. We want them in a growth mindset. Tell them, we are growing your resilience. Stress exposure works best when the challenge is slowly increased. So start simple. Maybe have a simulated partner list off the patient's meds or vital signs while the learner performs the psychomotor skill. This is an excellent way to assess whether or not the skill is automated. Because if the learner can remember the vital signs, remember the meds, that's a sign that they've freed up their working memory during the skill process. Next, maybe have a simulated patient who needs reassurance to get over the anxiety of of a mask, of CPAP. Talking and doing at the same time is what we're aiming for. Or add in a piece of equipment that's cracked, and the student has to discover that and problem solve. If they can troubleshoot and regroup in variable scenarios, this is a sign that the skill is automated. Now you can ramp things up significantly, perhaps have a family member who might be crying or talking loudly. And as they communicate with the distressed family member while their hands set up the CPAP or whatever automated skill you've programmed, they've arrived at full automation via the magic of step one, a detailed task analysis. Two, prompt expert feedback. Three, their work, their heavy, heavy work, overlearning. And four, stress exposure. And just like that, the learner has automated the skill. Magic. Powerful, powerful magic. And earlier in this episode, I told you I'd mention a story of the dangers of overlearning. There are two big warnings. First, make sure you're putting them in variable settings. Sometimes, unknowingly, we hardwire habits that make it hard for the medic to adjust on the fly later. For example, if they always sit in a chair during the IV start repetitions, They may have trouble moving to the floor if you've never practiced there. So mix it up. Second, be very careful what you program. Overlearning is like computer input and output. If you do it right, you will get out what you put in, especially when the wicked setting arrives. I've got two examples. One is my own. Another is from a book I strongly recommend called On Combat. In his book On Combat, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman warns that whatever is drilled in during training comes out the other end in combat, and he says no more and no less. Here's one of his tragic examples. For almost a century, because officers wanted to avoid having to pick up their empty brass from their revolvers on the shooting range, the officers would fire six shots, stop, dump their brass from their revolvers into their hands, place the brass in their pockets, reload, and then continue shooting. Later, they wouldn't have a big pile at their feet to pick up. And they assumed, wrongly, that in real action situations, they wouldn't care about the trash, and that when the time came 
to actually fire and reload, they would know to just empty the brass to the ground to increase speed. Well, muscle memory is powerful magic. On several tragic occasions on real calls, killed or wounded officers were found with brass in their pockets. What Grossman points out is that they were dying in the middle of an unneeded procedure that had been drilled into them. As Archilochus, the Greek soldier and poet, told us over 2,000 years ago, we're still learning, (laughs) we don't rise to the level of our expectations, we fall to the level of our training. And you say, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, Ginger, but I'm not in combat. I'll have a little time to think. And to you, I say, "Mm mm-hmm. Take this example that I mentioned previously when I interviewed Michael Loria in episode 10. For years, when working through our task analysis and doing skills testing, we would name our Ivy Start mannequin Mr. Arm, so the student could introduce themselves to the patient. Countless times, countless repetitions, while they were overlearning, the student would say, Hello, Mr. Arm. I'm so-and-so. I'm going to start an IV on you today. And so it happened. We put it in, and out it came. Of course it happened. Under the stress of their first IV on a sick patient in the ER... What does the student say? Hello, Mr. Arm. And there was really only one thing to blame in that moment, and that was the process. The process that the faculty had prescribed for the learner. Quick recap before I let you go. Four steps for teaching and learning psychomotor skills. Step one, develop a task analysis. The task analysis should be as detail-heavy, and it should be prepared by an expert in the field. Step two, provide prompt feedback as the student learns, as they develop competence in a controlled setting. Step three, after competence has occurred, we put in the heavy, heavy repetitions. These can be in the lab. You can also add in uh, mental simulations to cement the muscle memory. And the last step is stress exposure, where you slowly change the environments, adding in increasing difficulty. And voila. So that's it. This is my understanding of what we currently know about the best practices for teaching and learning psychomotor skills. Thank you guys for the micro listen. Bye, y'all. There are show notes for this one. Check them out on medicmindset.com. It'll be listed under Microsode 1.